Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit Hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain... Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Hello and welcome to the BBC Good Food Podcast with me, Tom Kerridge. Hello and welcome to the BBC Good Food Podcast with me, your host, Tony Naylor. And alongside me, as ever, we have cooking's top cat, the prince of the pass, Mr. Tom Kerridge, who in this week's episode is going to take on one of his hardest challenges yet, that is turning me, a blundering incompetent, into a halfway decent cook by the end of this 30 minutes. So are you ready for this, Tom? Yes, my friend. We can turn anybody into a good cook. So, Tom, and I, you know, this won't be difficult for you. I want you to treat me as an absolute idiot who you need to tutor because, uh, you know, and I hope this won't upset you too much. And I'm almost whispering when I say it, but, you know, I am not a good cook. I eat out plenty. I write about food for a living, you know, and I'll put my palate up against anybody's. But in the kitchen, I'd say I'm bang average at best. I literally, and you you know, you'll think I'm making this up for the sake of this podcast, but I literally managed to stab myself in the hand twice last week cutting an onion. <laughs> so, you know, this is the level we're dealing with. So is this upsetting you, Tom, or are you used to dealing with people like me? No, because, uh, see, there was a couple of very good starting points there. You eat out a lot, you've got a good palate, right? So you know what things should look like, you know what things should taste like. It's how do we get there in the first place. So it's a little journey that you've got to go on. But it, but that's good. You, you know where an end result is. You know you know what you want something to taste lovely and the beautiful thing about it about food and cookery and if you've got a love for it like you clearly have not necessarily the cookery bit but the food bit is but the, the cook, it becomes very sensual. It, it, it involves everything. You have to kind of immerse yourself a little bit, give yourself a little bit of time. I would say if, you, if you're not a competent cook, don't start on a Tuesday night at 7.30 when you've got to get the kids to bed and like and you've got no time and you, you, you've got loads of emails to send from work. and where, Like, give yourself a bit of time. Give yourself a Sunday. Get, set yourself out a recipe and have a go at it and just go, okay, let's just get involved in it. Find time to do it. That, that, that would be my first 
dispersing. If you're not competent, find time, make space. Mindful cooking is the first step to uh, competency then. Yeah, I, I mean, it's just a case. I, also, the biggest tip that I'll always give for people, if you're going to follow a recipe, right, recipes are their they're guidelines, they're not the law. I mean, unless, of course, you're Unless making... it's one of yours. Yeah, no, no, 100% not one of mine. Mine are definitely there. For, but there's nothing better, that I think, when you're a cookbook writer and you've written stuff. I love it when people show me the books that they cook from and they scribbled it out and changed it and moved it about. And I love it because it means it's getting used. It means it's sat there in the kitchen getting dirty and getting grease and flour on it and whatever else. So it, they're there as guidelines of flavour profiles of where you want to build something to. And most cookbooks, but most recipes, you know, particularly not the advanced one, the ones for at home, you know, anything that I've written, Rick Stein, Jamie, Nigella, you know, Delia, they're all great home cook kind of recipes and the simpler ones they're the best ones for you to get into the rhythm and the mood of cooking and by simpler simpler doesn't always mean quick you know simpler can be slow roast shoulder of lamb stuck on some potatoes that are sliced up and stuck in the oven for four hours do you know what I mean four hours but it's simple you know it's it's, it's about just kind of understanding what you're going to do so um I'm trying to kind of declutter and strip it down before we get into this because I think we could go in at the wrong point. So I think like a lot of people, I've accumulated somehow a kitchen full of stuff. And, you know, I should probably start my bin in half it because I never use it. So, you know, in that dream scenario, what do we really need? So knives and yeah. knife care. I mean, you know, if I'm going to go out tomorrow, what do I need? What can I buy? What do I need to spend? Well... That that varies. I would say if you're a complete beginner, buy yourself relatively good knives. So there's um, plastic handled chef's knives, but proper chef's knives. Now, they're fairly expensive, but they're not like the Uber folded a hundred times Japanese steel ones. They're, they're you know, they're moulded. They're, they're pretty pricey. But at the same point, if you don't understand how to keep them sharp, then they're almost disposable. You'll have them for a year or two. Okay, so sharpening, learning to sharpen a knife, you know, on a, on a steel. And I would say you need two, maybe three knives if you're starting off. One is a cook's knife where where the actual blade itself is deeper to the chopping board than the handle, okay? So that when you chop down, you're going to have your hand completely around the handle, but the knife will be on the board so that you can chop herbs and do whatever else. Um, Good cook's knife like that. But then that will also work for slicing tomatoes or whatever else. Small paring knife, so a a smaller version of that, but that's very good for like peeling garlic um, and thinly slicing little things. Um, And then maybe a serrated knife, which is good for kind of, uh, I mean, carving, doing bread, you know, just those three knives will probably get you through as a really good starting little bit and I would spend I'd spend a bit of money on them but not massive you haven't got to go go don't go wild until you really know what you're doing and then once you've got used to sh- keeping those knives sharp you understand how to keep those knives sharp then you can go and buy buy yourself a lovely new one and like a, a, and just keep going and build your collection so ballpark figure what are we talking for some half decent knives 
around about 45 quid and you can find them online and like an online chef's shop and you will see that there's kind of like black molded handled ones there's some yellow molded handled ones those sort of things. those are the kind of knives that you want to buy um and yeah they, they start around about 45 pound for uh, for the big cook's knife and then for the small pair of knife i mean they're they're, they're i don't know 15 quid maybe not not very much money and they'll they'll if you buy yourself a steel and learn to sharpen. Have a, li a little look at an online video, but literally it's about stroking the knife on the steel that tries to keep the pinpoint of the blade sharp. And a sharp knife is always safer than a blunt one. And I know people go, what? But if it, it, a sharp knife will actually cut something. A blunt one, if you're having to push down on it, like that extra way, that extra force, means you're starting to not work with the knife. You're actually working against the knife. And then it will suddenly jump and move. And that's when you slice yourself and cut yourself sharp knife as long as you keep your fingers out of the way will cut exactly what's in front of it you know why that is so your implication that my knives are blunt which is probably correct yeah it's because the sharpener we've got is rubbish uh, and you used to have a steel and i don't know where it went and now i've got one of those things that you kind of you know run a knife through, through it and uh yeah somehow i never feel it kind of you know but that might be because that's been used Maybe it's quite my a technique, lot. actually, that's no, but at those, fault again. But. Those knife sharpeners do work. You might just need to buy a new one. Right. Because sometimes if you've used it quite a bit, they they dull. The the honing kind of um, outside of it, that they dull. Right. So if you're nice blunt and then trying to hone it or sharpen it on one of those that's um, blunt, it's never, never going to work. Now, uh, one thing I am quite enthusiastic about I think if you buy a good swivel head peeler, it's transformative. And the dirt cheap, and I've no idea what the kind of specification is. Of... Uh, what's a swivel head peeler? You mean a speed peeler? Uh, well, yes, yeah, sorry, chefs call them speed peelers, don't yeah, they? Yeah, so you've got the the old-fashioned potato peeler like my nan used to have, this long and pointy, looks like no, a knife. Not, yeah. Now, the other one that looks like a... Um, I don't know. You a kind pull of U-shape, isn't yeah, it? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. cold swiveled head because it rotates slightly, doesn't it, yeah, as you're working yeah, with it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Speed peeler because you can speed peel with them really, really quickly. Yeah. yeah. Pull down, start at the top, pull down, start at the top, pull down. Um, garlic presses, where do you stand on them? I mean, as a professional, would you get laughed at if you were in the kitchen using a garlic press? Can you chop, finely chop garlic quicker than I could probably strip down a No, clove? but actually garlic's <laughs> quite an interesting one because the use of it, 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 it garlic is different so i grate garlic a lot now grating garlic put, cr creates oils the press does exactly the same thing so where you grate or squeeze garlic you get much more flavor out of it than thinly slicing it but thinly slicing will give you texture and also it gives you it, it depends it, there's quite a nuance in the way that you cook things if you've got thinly sliced garlic and you cook it like in a stir fry at the beginning it gives it that and it goes toasty and gives that it flavors the oil and gives it that lovely bitterness grating or squeezing pressing garlic gives it like an under and richer, smoother, longer flavour that will go through things like a basic tomato sauce right, or okay. a ragu or a curry or a... Yeah, so it, it depends. But a garlic press, there's nothing wrong with that. That will drive and intensify flavour. I mean, I say this because obviously I'm kind of assuming people have a few pans and a few sieves. So um, your Desert Island kitchen... Hmm. What are the key bits of kit? I mean, have we kind of covered it there? Or I mean, you the other things that you need? And then if you're going to cook, you can do it with one pan as well. I'm a big fan of like a large saute pan with a lid. So, it, so it's got the base of a big sauce, but a big frying pan, high-sided, 
and straight, but nowhere near as deep as a saucepan. So it's, I mean, what's that? I mean, 10 centimetres probably. Yeah, yeah, 10, less, yeah. yeah 10 centimetres high handle and a lid that sits on it. So you can fill it with water if you want. You can blanch stuff in it. You keep it dry. You can fry steaks in it. You can use it as a frying pan. But also it works really nicely with the lid on that you can braise stuff in it and slow cook. So it, it's kind of a one-stop pan. Now, I would buy a very expensive one, like, you know, a really lovely copper one or a really thick-bottomed, uh, like, Belgium make um, that, that, that do... They're, they're super, super pricey, but they'll last forever. They, these are things, pans like that, you know, we, we, we joke about, you know, the orange pan that your nan used to have. But she had it, and she's had it forever. They might. We go, you go back to those days when people were given a, a gift like that as a wedding present, yeah. and then they still yeah. have it 50 years later. I mean, it sounds as an expensive outlay now, but if that pan lasts you 50 years and you cook on it four nights a week, I mean, that's a lot of use out of that pan. It, does, it works out as very, very little. So you're intending you're not going to be safe from this desert island, so you're going to need something that's durable. Yeah, pretty pretty. <laughs> well, also, and also they cook so much nicer. When you spend good money on, on pans like that, they conduct heat much better. All the working has gone into the bottom of the understanding of how it conducts heat, so it's even and it's equal everywhere, and it just makes cooking so much nicer and simpler it doesn't bend or warp or it doesn't all of those sort of things it just you enjoy cooking a little bit more it's like yeah i think it's like anything in life you spend a little bit more money on it you enjoy the thing that you have more uh, as a general rule i wouldn't say this all the time but you know quite often the more money you spend on something the more effort has gone into it from an engineering or a design phase to when it actually works in a much better context so we've got the knives this episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Are there obvious things that people do right and wrong as novices with knives in terms of slicing and dicing that, you know, you would advise us not to do? Yeah, overcome. Do you want me to show you the action of yeah, how I end yeah. up stabbing myself? <laughs> so I had half an onion and I'm sort of arching my hand over it. So yeah. obviously you can't see this. And I'm cutting like this, trying to really finely cut it. And obviously stabbing myself in yeah, hand so in the process. See there, so you've got, so what, what, what Tony had there is he had his fingers and thumb hold it and he then he cut in between the fingers and the thumb yeah. so what you need to do and it's and this is the thing that takes practice all the time is you have your fingers that hold the onion down the thumb behind the fingers and then your knife runs in front of the fingers in a downward motion and if you keep the knife against your bent over fingers you're never going to cut them so, so you this is the kind it. of classic uh, kind of, I don't know how to describe weird it. Weird chef fist The weird thing. chef fist, the kind of yeah. claw yeah, that sits exactly. above what you're cutting. And it's um, practice, because your natural instinct... Presumably, in learning to do that, you cut yourself quite regularly at the start, or...? Yeah, 
but nowhere near as bad as you think because you're sliding up and down. So you might shave a knuckle a little bit, but you're not stabbing yourself. You're never yeah. going to... None of your digits are sticking out. I feel I've let myself down you, by so, doing that. So, so you're... <laughs> At this stage, but, I should no, know it's better. it's completely normal. Like when I first went into a kitchen as an 18-year-old, you, you're, you're, it's about grabbing. When you pick things up, you're taught as a child. And the way that we take do everything else, grabbing a cup of coffee, is all about using your fingers. The moment it comes to cutting things, it's about protecting your fingers. So it's it's almost a reverse way of thinking. And it's one of those things that just take practice. But that's one of those things that when I ever see anybody else with a knife is is overconfidence. You know, they think they know what they're doing and they, they're chopping away. And before you know it, I mean, there, there was a big spate recently, wasn't there, of what was it called? Avocado hand. In <laughs> really? Mi- middle class Britain, <laughs> where, where people were taking avocado stones out. Oh, where, yeah. By, yeah, by, yeah. By chopping the knife into the stone to turn it, missing the knife and cutting into their palm. So I think, yeah. I, we we want to avoid avocado hand. Don't be overconfident and just. And I know from talking to chefs in the past that really nothing is a bigger sin than using the wrong knife for the wrong job in the kitchen. Well, yeah. Yes and no. Or is that the rule that you have, but then you freely break because you actually know what you're doing? The right knife for the right job. Yeah. I mean, if you're, boning out it's very different it's a highly unlikely that at home you're going to have a saddle of venison that you're going to bone out from start to finish you're going to have two portions of loin that you, yeah. you know so if a chef you've got a saddle of venison and someone comes at it with a great big cook's knife then you're going to go mate what are you doing you need to have a flexible blade that will bend against the bone and whatever else when you're at home if it's a knife that just works, then that's fine. I mean, I used to work with a chef. I worked with him for years. I, in fact, I learned pretty much everything I knew of a guy called John Bentham, who was head chef for uh, Stephen Bull restaurants when I was there. And then we both went as head chef and sous chef together as a team for Gary Rhodes. And John's food knowledge is phenomenal. Um, he's kind of semi-retired now. But he, he, he had basically, I mean, he had a selection of knives, but he never used them. He had one boning knife and that would be it. He would get that out in the morning and it was like, it, it was just like it would be his trusted lieutenant and he would sharpen it constantly all the time and he'd use that for dicing vegetables he'd use that for prepping fish he'd use it for prep but that's because you know at that point john was i don't know 40 and i was 25 or whatever and he was constantly it was his thing that he had for 20 years that was this knife and it was he learned to do everything with it so yes you could say that yeah uh, i mean there's the correct knife for the correct job however unless you're john bentham uh yeah unless, <laughs> unless you are going to become one with your knife exactly then, you know, it was, it was yeah. just like an extension of his hand <laughs> that was it so we're chopping we've got some vegetables so let's just talk about kind of prep and cooking there um are we missing a trick in terms of uh should we just roast as many vegetables as we feasibly can? If you don't know what you're doing, I suspect then the little, you know, the the, 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 the least interaction you can have with that, the better it is. Yeah. And so that strikes me as a simple way of, you know, creating great flavour. You don't really do much. No. You, know, ro- you dress and stick in the oven. 100%. Like, it definitely, ro- roast, roasting veg is a great way of getting brilliant flavour profiles, particularly things like root vegetables. It's amazing, you know, because what happens with root vegetables, they, they've got lovely starch and, and sugars, and the more you roast them, the, the sugars caramelise, and they're beautiful. Things like Swedes and carrots, you know, uh, uh, parsnips, they're incredible incredible wonderful flavors um some take a little bit longer to cook than others like celeriac and carrots take a bit longer than potatoes and parsnips you know you have to have a slight understanding of water content but the reality is if you chopped if you peeled a load of root vegetables and cut them pretty much 
the same size so that they cook evenly, put them into a roasting tray, drizzle them with olive oil, some dried herbs, some salt and pepper, stir them around a bit, wax them in the oven for 45 minutes. You will end up with this beautiful tray of flavour. And then if you think from that, you've got this uh, little caramelised nuggety bits, you've got these soft gooey bits, drizzle that with some lovely olive oil, a little splash of balsamic vinegar. You've got amazing Mediterranean or roasted root vegetables, throw in some fresh herbs. And that involved pretty much nothing in the way of chopping nothing precise anyway just around about the same time uh, around about the same size so they cook at the same time and then you roasted a chicken separately there you go stick it all in the middle of the table let everyone help themselves i mean it's a very easy way to start cooking because i suppose that's what as a novice cook you are looking for isn't it basically methods which allow you license you know you don't want anything where you're watching everything to the final second no. you know you want something whereby if it goes over a little then it might just add a bit more interesting flavor well, not this is the beautiful thing yeah well this is a beautiful thing i love about family style cookery that when you look at um things like uh roasted meats and everyone worries about having a, a leg of lamb pink or a, a rib of beef that's you know perfectly medium rare or actually if you're a beginner cook do a shoulder of lamb slow cook it leave it in the oven for 4 hours 5 hours it's fine it's no problem them, you know, do short ribs of beef, stick them in the oven, do brisket, slow braises, just keep them in the oven. You're not going to go wrong. The only thing to go wrong is if you take them out too early, not cooked enough, you know, they're never really going to overcook. So you you can, that's a great way of driving flavour and being comfortable about what you're doing. But also, you know, if you want to create something, you want to learn to make a really lovely tomato-y style pasta bolognese kind of chilli sauce. One style of... Um, kind of like uh, mince tomato sauce base. If you learn how to make that, caramelise some garlic and some onions, roast off the mince separately in a roasting tray so it goes really dark and crispy and brown, give it a stir. That could take 45 minutes just on its own, just baked in the oven. And then... And you want to do that because that's where you drive that flavour from, whether it's minced beef, whether it's minced lamb. You know, if you think the outside bits of um, beef when it's been roasted or the caramelised bits of pieces of meat on a barbecue, those are the bits that are really tasty. If you're doing that to the mince, then it's great. But caramelised, um, so your onions and your garlic in a pan, then put in some diced carrots maybe, some celery, stir it around, some tomato puree, Tins of chopped tomatoes, some stock, bring it up to the boil, then chuck in your mince, your seasonings and some some uh, some dried herbs and some red wine and, and cook it out. And that's kind of like a, the base level of a, a ragu stew and start cooking that. You can throw mushrooms in it. You can take that down an Italian route. You can throw kidney beans in that and you can take it down a, a Mexican style route. You could put it some stock in it and, and cook it out for longer with some lamb in it. It becomes shepherd's pie. So there's... A, learning to get that basic level there using minced beef and a tomato base gives you so many options to go in so many different ways. Uh, do, do we get too hung up on fashion a bit with this? Because, you know, I can't remember the last time anybody served me mashed potatoes I went around to their house to eat. And yet, you know, <laughs> mashing again is one of those things where you can get away with loads under the cover of butter and salt. Yeah. Know, so. uh, yeah, and no, absolutely. I think mashing vegetables is a great way of... I mean, 
there's a skill and a technique to it, but you want you want to cook them, overcook them to the point where they can go mashy, but not cook them to the point where they absorb moisture and become too watery. And that's where, the, but you can do things with with, with mash, do 50% potato, 50% cauliflower, 50% potato, 50% celeriac. And then you start making these things really quite interesting. And using a potato ricer, you know, listen, at the restaurant, we, we'll put it through a moody and a potato ricer, and then we'll put it through a very fine sieve, and then we'll add, but at home, there's nothing wrong with a little bit of lumpy mash. It's great, you know, but loads of butter, plenty of salt and pepper. Seasoning is a big thing as well. You know, don't be scared of using salt and pepper. I know we're constantly told about the levels that we should be eating and what we're watching and what we do. But when it comes to flavour, don't be scared of just driving it just a little bit more. I was going to come on to this later, but as you brought it up, there is a lot of mystery surrounds the art of chefing. I am increasingly of the view that a lot of it is just bunging in far more salt than most normal people would <laughs> include in their food. Not to decry the art of what you do, but, you know, there is an element of truth to that, isn't there? Yeah, very much, because people are scared of seasoning. Because once you put it in, you can't take it out. So it's being confident of what you're using and what you're putting in. But salt and pepper drives flavour. Seasonings, flavourings, dry rubs, those sort of mixes, smoked paprika, you know. I bet you've got a cupboard at home full of dried spices that you've used yeah. a couple of times and then not gone back to again, you know. There's nothing wrong with trying to experiment with those things and pulling flavour, just little bits, pun- pinches of it, you know, pinches of curry powder in a in a beef stew or just something. You're not making a curry, but you're just giving a different layer of flavour. And they, they all work magic and wonders. I mean, again, in terms of creating flexibility, a certain licence where you can get away with a little bit more, marinate, if you've marinated meat of whatever sort well, if it's a slightly overcooked when it comes out, it matters less than if it's going to stand or fall purely on its own flavour, doesn't it? Yeah, and that, that marinade is flavour, is great. But the one thing that you, you never get is you can you never get love if you don't... That comes across so much in a finished dish. If you've cared for cooking that, having a go at doing something, you people can really tell when they eat a dish, even if the beef is overcooked, even if the, you know, your roasted veg that you put with it, some are burnt on the bottom or whatever. It doesn't matter. There's a there's a sense of a flavour and, and something that happens and something comes through when you really put that little bit of extra effort and love and care into a dish. And, it, and it, it, it's not a measured amount of salt or a, a particular... Um, type of chopped tomato or a it, it is your own soul and that does come across I mean just to throw a couple at you so you can give me some examples I mean I, I, I used to go somewhere where they served a skirt steak and it just been simply marinated in soy and ginger absolutely incredible and you know there's no, no skill involved in that really so you know we've got some chicken diced chicken maybe you know something simple that people won't be afraid of I mean what should we marinate that in before we cook it? Chicken, chicken cooks very, very quickly. So you can you can essentially cook that in. Um, you can use a dark a dark soy, like you mentioned there, but you could add a sweetener to that. So you could add maple syrup if you wanted to, or a little bit of honey, or a little bit of brown sugar. And with that, you can find some counterbalance with some chili or some olive oil, or very, very simply, just some fresh herbs, like, like just roughly bruised, not even chopped up, just torn, thrown in there with some olive oil and then you can put the whole thing onto a grill pan or a frying pan or something if you've if it's small little pieces that and it cooks it cooks quickly chicken cooks quick so all of those flavors they don't burn too hard or fast they don't you've got time for those flavors to work um it it, it, it works um it's you got to remember the thing about chicken as well that it's not 
it's not got such a big, strong flavor in itself. It actually works as a protein that works much better as a flavor vehicle. Yeah. Yeah. So you could add whatever you wanted to it, really. I mean, sit it in some buttermilk um, and then dust it in some flour and some coatings of seasoning and, and bake it, and you get some kind of like style fried chicken, you know, you all fry it. Um, you could stick it in a yogurt and then uh, mix it as a tandoor kind of style. Like it, it takes on, it can take on any sort of flavor, but it doesn't take long to cook at all. All of which require no particular skill do they i mean you know that's not, the key I mean, bit i mean you're, you're really, building no. in flavor without any great exactly yeah the marinating talent. part is, yeah. is is just i mean it's a very very simple thing to do and it will it, it gives you you know it will lift your dish 100 percent. you mentioned i think shoulder of lamb earlier as saying something you can just basically bung in the oven and forget about i mean again i think if if you're inexperienced you're more likely to go and spend big money on a steak on the basis that you've literally got to you know Fried a thing for a few minutes either side, and that works. Yeah, but, but what I mean, a nightmare! Uh, the steak. You oh, you think? You, yeah, for me, I think right. steak cooker is one of the hardest to perfect because you know a, a steak's got to have a lovely crispy outer skin on it. It's got to have this lovely seasoning. It's got to be. It's got to be really, really well kind of fried. And it, most people will grill a steak, and it's a bit grey. And then if you buy steak from the supermarket, not very often is it very thick. So by the time you've got any sort of colour on it, you've overcooked it. You know, and then you you talk about resting it, but because it's so thin and your kitchen's cold, the steak's gone cold by the time you've eaten. It's all for me. I think it's you like know, a horror film. It is for me. I think if you if you're cooking steaks and doing them really well at home, you're quite an experienced and well. And a, and a good cook just because it's quick doesn't always mean that it's easy so go on then talk to us about lamb then so it, you know shoulder of lamb it for me is one of the best cuts of, of meat there is it's got a great meat um, to fat ratio it, it, you get it on the bone and all you got to do is uh, pierce a few holes and put some ho whole cloves of peeled garlic in it if you wanted to you haven't even got to do that if you don't want to. You just drizzle it with some olive oil, rub in some dried herbs, some salt and pepper, put it in an oven at 140, 150 degrees and leave it there for four hours. And that, and that is it. And it will get this lovely kind of salty, crispy lamb crust on the outside. And you'll be able to flake all the meat away from it. And it's fantastic. It, it's such a simple... And it makes the house smell lovely. That's a bonus. That's a yeah. bonus. <laughs> It's time for Where Do You Stand On? Where do you stand on? Right, so we're going to do a quick Where Do You Stand On? So okay. some of the things that end up in kitchens and perhaps should never have done, I don't know. Uh, glass chopping boards. Never. Oh, my God. The worst thing ever. Like, the, for me, big, thick Wooden chopping board, beautiful. The, the knife works better on it. It's got something slightly to cut into. It works really nice. Yeah, I mean, whoever thought of that? Crazy. Well, there's two in my house that oh. I've been threatening to smash with a hammer for quite a while. So now I've got Do license it. from Tom yeah, Kerry, so I'm definitely going to get rid of him. Uh, wooden spoons versus silicon scrapers. Dif different things. Different things. Right, okay. I love a wooden spoon. I, I absolutely, I love a wooden spoon for stirring ragouts and casseroles and, and, and spatula scraper things. They're really good for pastry work, for moving cream around and doing that sort of stuff. They, they're two slightly different things. If you're going to buy one, you would buy the plastic 
spatula because okay. the wooden spoon you can't get into a bowl to get all the cream out of as well but I would say a wooden spoon it, 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 there's something that's very tactile and beautiful there is about there's it. something about the, the sort of like dull donk of a wooden spoon on a pan that's quite soothing somehow yeah. massively 100% <laughs> yeah but that's what it is yeah but there you are let's see that Tony you're into the sensual <laughs> experience of cooking <laughs> so um, again something that there is a vast variety of in my house I've no idea why juicers now if i ever need to juice anything i tend to use a fork in my hand yeah by a juicer do you mean an electric one no no, no, one no just you, you know various squeezes and things that you would you know rotate fruit on to get the juice out of yeah i mean i think there's a place for them i think you probably get more juice out of a juicer than just squeezing it with your hand but i i, I in the professional kitchens we are Squeeze a lemon juice, like you've got lots of half lemons ready there for, and you're squeezing bit by bit by bit as you're basting pieces of meat or whatever it is or pieces of fish with it. So, um, yes, there is a place for juicers as long as you use them, though. Don't just stick them in the cupboard under the stair, uh, under the sink and just leave them there. Now, this is something I think's gone out of fashion a bit. I remember my mum having a wooden one years ago, but meat tenderizers. Uh, yeah, so there's kind of like a big hammer with the yeah. pointy bits on the end. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, they st actually, we still, for cookery and some of the recipes that we write for Good Food magazine, we use them, and we use them quite a bit to put to, a piece of meat, maybe a piece of chicken or a piece of pork between two pieces of cling film, and bash out. And they're good for bashing out to get an even layer to then roll something up in. Um, I don't think meat needs tenderizer. And now you mentioned that your mum used to have one, like, the same as mine. And I think, I think that was like, because our parents were probably... Uh, just um, post-war parents that grew up with a little bit of rationing when they were kids. So they were having the cheapest bits of meat but t turned into steak. So to tenderise <laughs> it, it was being bashed within an inch of its life before it was then grilled, like, really heavily. So Never mind rationing. I think I grew up on that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it, I think that takes hasn't gone away then. So... Um, We've done the kind of main course here. We've done the savoury element of this. You know, we've got a sweet to make now. Baking, I think, is a weird one for the kind of novice cook because I think everybody goes, oh, my God, it's really, really difficult. It's a highly scientific thing. Uh, you've got to be really accurate. But then I kind of think, well, is the accuracy you're saving? I mean, you know, if you've got a good pair of scales, are you essentially a good baker? As long as you can follow orders, I think there's a there's a there's an advanced skill set in, in in people that are very very good at pastry. That people who make wonderful cakes and sponges and and brilliant puddings. Um, but yeah, there is it's it's not as free, particularly at a beginner level. You're not as freestyle. You do need to measure and weigh completely, and the oven needs to be on the right temperature, and you need to have greased a tray, or you need to have done. So it is. It's not fail safe by any means, um, but it is much more controlled because if you follow the recipe exactly, and the oven is at the same temperature exactly, and the you know everything you've done is the same as the recipe, then you should pretty much end up with something that resembles the recipe. It's not. You know, flour is pretty much flour. I mean, it does change as different strengths and different glutens and that. But when we're talking at beginner's level, you know, it, it, it it's good. I think baking is a good way to get into it. I think like many of these things as well, you know, you can overreach, can't you, in the early stages? Yeah, you, a good let's not a go good, making a wedding cake yeah, yeah, you on know, day one. A good lemon drizzle cake can be a wonderful thing, can yeah, it, if absolutely. you do it properly? Yeah, done in a loaf tin. Like, no, you know, do it in a loaf tin. <laughs> yeah, it's perfect. Stock syrup, some lemon juice, pour it over the top. Job done. 
Excellent. So just to close, you're going to have to reveal some of the tricks of the trade here. So we mentioned seasoning beforehand. Yeah. So, I mean, are there any simple little things that chefs do that we civilians might not know about? So we're quite often seasoning at the beginning of a cooking process. Right. But also, but when it goes to a table, we will we may season again, and that's the main process. So using some flaky sea salt at the end, that gives texture and also makes everything come alive. So seasoning at the end as well, just making sure that you've got some flaky sea salt. Something that people have mentioned to me repeatedly over the last few years, whether it's become a, into fashion from somewhere, bit of lemon juice in savoury dishes to just kind of brighten the flavour of it and even kind of chiffonade in a bit of uh, citrus peel over the top of them even. You know, I had a, a ragu dish recently that did this and it works. I mean, it's, you know, really points up the flavours somehow. Yeah, acidity levels are always something that chefs will always look for, um, whether it comes from vinegar, whether it comes from a, a fruit like Granny Smith apples, whether it comes from citrus. You're always trying to drive acidity. So, so yeah, that's that 100%. Anything that makes it come alive right at the end is a great way of finishing a dish. And the other thing that I've kind of taken on board in my slow accumulation of knowledge in these areas, anchovies. I mean, as a seasoning at the start of cooking, if you want that big base <laughs> note in your cooking, can't go wrong with that, can you? Anchovies are a big trade secret. We use them lots and lots and lots in base level flavors. That does it's not people. It's not like little fish. You go anchovies. It's actually it's a really big, punchy, salty, umami flavour that gives a real depth um, and understanding of uh, uh, of trying to dry. It works so well with roasted meats. I mean, we mentioned that sh slow cooked shoulder of lamb. If you put some anchovies over the top of that and roasted them for four hours, they dissolve, they break up. That flavour goes into the lamb. It doesn't taste of anchovy, but what it does do is it enhances that roasted meat flavour, and it works beautifully. So what we've drawn out there is that I know about 3% more than I thought I did. Yeah, I think... I think All I've I... got to do now is stop stabbing myself yeah, and we can move on fairly rapidly. Yeah. Get your knife skills sorted and before you know it, you've got a job in a pro kitchen. Thank you very much, Tom. I'll report back. <laughs> Smash them glass chopping oh, boards. they are there, going. They are going. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the BBC Good Food Podcast with me, Tom Kerridge. For more brilliant cooking advice, don't miss the quick bonus recipe episode, Let's Cook Together. See you next time.